following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. If you're new here, uh, my name's Sam. I'm the pastor. I want to welcome you and just say we're delighted to have you. I would like to just take a quick minute. Um, and uh, first of all, we want, one of the things that we've been doing in the COVID era, which is kind of what we're in right now, trying to condense our Sunday gatherings so we're in and out, not a lot of extra stuff. And we've had to trim back some of our announcement pieces, which kind of stinks because there's a lot of information that I wish you would know about. And uh, so what I've been trying to do is put these midweek videos, Wednesday, Thursday, they get pumped out on Facebook, on, on Realm. So if you're not following our Facebook page, if you want to go there and like it, and you know, I think there's a way that you can get notifications when something gets posted. That's a good place to get communication, but also on Realm. It's our online um, social platform for our church that helps us sort of communicate and stay up to date with one another. All of that information is pumped there, but let me just highlight this um, as we're coming up. Uh, next week, we are celebrating Baptism Sunday. Um, we, we want to celebrate with parents who are wanting to baptize their recently born children or those who have made that step to follow Jesus and their next step in disciple is to be baptized. Uh, we want to celebrate that tomorrow. So if you fall into one of those two categories, we'd love to celebrate with you. And then the following week, which would be the 27th, we want to uh, celebrate with parents um, in parent-child dedication where lean toward baptizing their children. Other people want to, to dedicate or, or make that dedication, that vow in front of the church to say, hey, this is our, our aim is to raise our child in the way that they should go in following the Lord. And so that will be on September 27th. So if you're in one of those two camps, we would love to to invite you into that. There's a process that you want to get started on, and we'll celebrate those over the next two weeks. Um, that's it. I'm, this is a great Sunday. Listen, the, uh, the, the, the skies have opened up. The rain has stopped, right? After a, a week or a month, it feels like, of rain and just dreariness. The Lord's blessed us with a beautiful Sunday to worship together, be together, enjoy the sun, and it's the first Sunday of the football season, so I'm on cloud nine right now. Uh, and I'm excited to even more so to jump into the Sermon on the Mount with you today. I'm gonna pray. Uh, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Father God, we, we do come this morning um, confessing, and, and maybe it's like a reluctant confession or, or it's just like a, an inconsistent confession of that there is nothing better than you, that there just simply isn't. And this week, we, we've kind of veered from that statement pursuing other things besides you and, and glorifying other things that aren't you. And so I pray, Father, that this morning that you would work in refining our souls and purifying us and sanctifying us through the word as Jesus applies the word, as the Spirit applies the word to the church. Would you refine us? Would you sanctify us? Would you make us more beautiful in Christ? And so would you speak to the deep um, inner parts of our heart? Would you soften uh, our hearts to receive? First of all, open our ears to hear, soften our hearts to receive, God, and then quicken our, our hands and our feet to act on 
on these truths and these promises that you offer us. Help me to think clearly, to speak with precision, God, and with clarity of mind. Um, Help me to to just be in this text and to be joyfully um, reverent of what you have for us this morning, God. And would you change your people this morning as we come to the word. Um, We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know this. Uh, The church is facing a major crisis. We're in the midst of a crisis, folks. And the crisis may not necessarily be what you think. It's not the pandemic. It's not, I don't know, whatever else is going on. Really, the crisis isn't even necessarily this political cycle that we find. One of the biggest crises that the church faces is that there are more Christians in the church than there are followers of Jesus. That's a problem. And you see, like, how, how, can there be, how can there be more Christians than there are followers of Jesus? Because by definition, you can't be a Christian without being a follower of Jesus. Yet in our time, there has been this attempt to redefine the markers of what it means to be a Christian. We sort of tweaked some things, adjusted things to our liking to say, okay, well, I, I own a Bible, so that must mean I'm a Christian, or, or I, I, I vote this way or that way, so that points to the fact that I'm a Christian, or I'm a good person, I do good things most of the time, or, or the fact that I go to church, or even if you're at home watching, you, you do these things. Right, so it's like these, we've, we've traded the, the real markers for Christianity to some of these like lesser markers, and, and, and the thing is that none of these things make you a Christian any more than standing in a car in a garage makes you a car. That's a reality. Because the non-negotiable essence of being a Christian, what it boils down to is that you trust Jesus and you follow Jesus. That means you, you see what Jesus has done to save you from yourself, that he's delivered you from your sins, he's, he saved you from a life of just anguish and he set you in the high places. He's given you a new life and so we see him as our savior, we see him as our rescuer and we profess our trust in him. We move all of our chips off of ourselves and onto Jesus. But it's not simply a profession that we make with our mouths. We don't just simply say, oh yeah, this is what I believe, I trust, I'm saying it, but, but we model this, we make this profession with our entire lives and the way that we live, the way that we act, the way we think, the way we desire. So we say to Jesus, as we see him as Savior, we say, teach me to walk in your ways. Teach me to delight in your truth. That's that's the echoing of Psalm 86. Teach us your ways so that we may walk with you. This is the essence of being a disciple, that we follow Jesus. We don't just just affirm what Jesus says from a distance and and give our agreement, but we do so in a way where I'm, I'm willing to let my life come under all of that and let that influence every aspect of my life. And if we don't do this, we, we become prone to the error that James warns us on of in his epistle where he says, don't just be hearers of the word. Don't just be hearers of the words, but become doers of the word. Now this sermon series that we're in, we're calling Practicing the Way of Jesus, and that's what our aim is, not to just be affirmers of the way of Jesus, not just to be people who say, yeah, this, this is probably the best way to go about it, but to be people who actually practice, who see the way of Jesus and emulate that in our own lives. That's our aim, that we would trust Jesus and follow him, and in following him, we would become like him, because there is no one more wise, more gracious, more strong, 
more truthful, more humble than Jesus. And when we see the beauty of Jesus and and we are gravitated toward him, he takes us under his wing and he provides for us a new code for life. That's basically what the Sermon on the Mount is. That's where we're at in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. It's this new code for life. This is what kingdom life worked out right now in the present tense looks like. He gives us new values, teaches us these new dynamics of life. And in doing so, Jesus is inviting us into the way of flourishing. See, it's not just a way to go about life, but it's the way we go about life. It's it's the way we find true flourishing. It's the way we find true happiness, the real good life. And so Jesus here is offering us this invitation in Matthew chapter 5. The question is, will you accept it? Will you see this glorious invite that he's giving us and will you live into it? Will you receive it and thus lockstep with Jesus following him all the days of your life? Now if you're brave enough to say yes, then you better brace yourself for a major life change. Right, a, a radical reorientation of how this world works and, and how we view this world. Because as Jesus introduces us to the kingdom of heaven here in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, he shows us that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is upside down. Right? It, it's kind of backwards. It's contrary to how this world, how our current common experience orients us, and he's trying to show us how upside down this kingdom is. In fact, uh, my son... He loves Mario Galaxy, and this is maybe like the only time he's gonna listen to this sermon right now. He's not even got his face toward me. But in Mario Galaxy, when you're, when you're playing this game, if you're walking normal on, it's kinda of like three-dimensional, if you're walking normal, the controls work the right way, but as soon as you go upside down, the controls work backwards. And this is kind of what the kingdom of heaven is like, that that it's upside down and the controls work backwards. Jesus is t- telling us the way up is down. The way to increase is to decrease. The way to find your life is to lose your life, and then you find it. See, and we've seen this paradoxical nature that Jesus is introducing in the first couple of Beatitudes where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, or he's saying happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We see this upside down, and it's not saying that the blessed are the self-sufficient. Blessed are those who can take care of themselves. It's the poor in spirit who are blessed. He's not saying blessed are the carefree. It's, the, it's those who are mourning, who have this anguish in their soul, who find happiness. And the third beatitude is just as paradoxical and backward, especially and when you realize how, how severe it cuts against the grain of our culture when he says in Matthew chapter five, verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It seems backwards. And, and, and so much so that we hear Jesus say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the, the earth. And we wonder if there's been some sort of a typo here. Right? We wonder if Jesus has all, has all of his screws on tight or if there's been some sort of translation issue. And so we're wondering what could he possibly mean, be meaning? Because here's the reality that, that in our culture, we probably don't understand what meekness is. 
from meekness that we don't even have an accurate definition. We don't even have a working de- definition or, or, or vocabulary for what it means to be meek because it is so contrary to our culture's values. According to our culture, meekness, or just the word meek, is an offensive four-letter word because in the economy of our culture, meekness is essentially a death wish. That's what it is. If you wanna be meek, you're gonna get trampled on. And, and, and so our society sees meekness as synonymous with weakness, and I don't know why that is. I mean, it rhymes, but, but there's no parallel there. See, we, we tend to think that meek to be meek means that we're hopelessly passive. We just sort of lay back and let whoever or whatever have its way with us. That we're like, you know, we're like a, a, a stick that's bobbing up and down in the ocean. Like we, we got no control. We just go wherever the wind and the waves take us. Or, or it means that we become a sort of despondent coward, that there's no way to control anything that we've, j- you know, so we just sort of like back off. Or, or maybe we think of it like a detrimental trait like shyness, right? This, this introvertedness that keeps me from expressing myself or, or, or doing anything to kind of con- convey what I'm, I'm feeling or thinking or experiencing. And it's because this culture has this definition, these really shoddy definitions of what meekness is, it's no wonder why the culture wants to push away from it. Because the culture says, like, if you're gonna be meek, the only thing that you're gonna inherit is a boot to the head, right? You're gonna get stepped on, you're gonna get trampled, you're gonna get walked all over. And in doing so, like, in letting that happen, you'll be marginalized, you'll be victimized. After all, we live in this dog-eat-dog world, and if you're gonna be meek, it's like the equivalent of wearing milk-bone underwear. Right? You're gonna get devoured. So the narrative of the culture then is if you want to be happy, if you want, want to have this good life, you need to take control. You need to assert yourself, flex your power so people know that you're a, a force to be reckoned with. If you want yours, go get it, right? Go get it. Nobody's gonna do it for you. You gotta do it yourself. And if you are blazing your old trail, chances are somebody's gonna get run over and that's just the cost. That's the price that you gotta pay, right? No big deal. That's our mentality. Now, Eugene Peterson, he, he, he's a pastor, uh, recently passed away within the last couple years. Um, in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he says that our culture, here's a slide up here for you, our culture rewards ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. Everyone wants to get more. To be on top, no matter what it is the top of, is admired. He, he's putting his, his finger on this reality that, that we have this desire as a culture to assert ourselves, to, to demand what we want, and to take it with force, right? If you want it, go get it. And when you go get it, you're gonna be applauded, right? People are gonna look up to you, oh, they, they really got after it. They know what they're doing. So if you want to get it, go get it. Go take it. You'll be applauded. Or the alternative is you sit back and you get took. Somebody else does it. And you don't get what you want. And Peterson goes on and he says there's nothing recent about this temptation. There's nothing recent about this orientation 
to our world and to our life. It is the oldest sin in the book. The one that got Adam thrown out of the garden and Lucifer tossed out of heaven. What is fairly new about this is the general admiration and approval it receives. See, this is what's crazy about our culture right now. If you go do this, it's like, Our culture has this incentive to become a bully, to become victimizers, to demand your way and get it. But here's the thing. If if you live into this narrative, you you buy into the dog-eat-dog world, wherever there's a victimizer, there will always be a victim. There will always be somebody who's being trampled underfoot. And what happens when this is the narrative? What happens when this is the norm for culture? Well, there's the dominant, and then there are those who are are anxious and fearful because they don't see themselves as that powerful person. They, They navigate life with this fearful loathing. They're afraid of relationships. They're afraid of work dynamics. They're afraid of just their place in life. Because what happens when I get trampled, right? If I'm not powerful, I can't buck up to it. What's gonna happen to me? And so this either forces you into a mindset of, I need to become powerful. I need to rise up. I need to assert myself. I got to get after it. Or you resign. Or you say, man, there's no way. I've got to flick the switch and go into some sort of self-protection mode. Keep everybody at arm's length so nobody can get in and trample on me. This is no way to live. This dynamic is opposite from flourishing. And Jesus here in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, is offering this new way of life that has true flourishing. Now, as, as Eugene Peterson says in that previous quote, he says, there's nothing new about this phenomenon, all right? There's, there's nothing new about this self-assertion to go get our way. Now, in the first century, to the people that Jesus is talking to as he's up on a mountainside preaching the Sermon on the Mount, those who are from the Greco-Roman culture, those people who are steeped in this Gentile view of life, they were immersed in this dog-eat-dog world. They were glorified bullies. That's how the Romans rose to powers. They, They saw people groups, and they took them. They, They overpowered them, and then they made them their subjects. And so they have this mentality that we very much have immersed in our culture now that only the strong survive. That's what it takes. If you want to survive, you got to be strong. you got to prove your dominance. And so they saw this this concept of thriving, this good life, as, as being at the top of the food chain, making sure that everybody else is fearful of you. Now the Jews were the ones who were getting trampled on. They were the ones who were underfoot of the Greco-Roman world. And they resented it. They hated it. In fact, one of the deepest desires as they traced their prom- the promises of God through the Old Testament was that there was gonna be this Messiah who was gonna rise up from the line of David. He was gonna come back, and, and what they thought, it was gonna be in political power, and military power, that he was going to assert the dominance of God's people over the Gentile world. That's what they were hoping for. They were waiting for this promised Messiah, the Savior, to rise in power and to liberate them from their oppressors, to overthrow the strong man. And that, to them, was their mindset of this is what it looks like to regain this flourishing life, this thriving, this good life that God seems to promise. 
Now, as we're standing here, thousands of years removed from that, we can see how this same mindset is embedded with our own culture, especially as we sit in the midst of an election cycle. Because we tend to think, if only my party were in power, right? If only were my president calling the shots, if only a Christian president was up there making good calls, he would be protecting us. If only we could overthrow the bad guys who seem to be squishing us. And, and, and instead of, you know, like, and here's the, the sort of rallying cries that our political parties use, right? To, to kind of gather the people who feel oppressed or the people who feel that they, they're underfoot, like the, the silent majority, right? That's language that we use. Oh yeah, if we just gotta get all these people together or those people who are, find themselves in some sort of intersection, right? The intersectionality concept. We're just gathering those people who feel like they're being trampled on so that they'll get a voice and rise to power and then assert their dominance once again. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't come with a rally cry like our political parties do. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, we're gonna sweep this world and we're gonna take back power. Jesus comes and gives a beatitude. Jesus comes and gives this statement that says here is the way to flourishing, and it's not what you think it is. Jesus says, the way to gain the world is by meekness. The way to gain the world is not by self-assertion. It's not by having this laser focus and you just trample over whatever you gotta trample to get to what you want. Jesus says, the way to gain the world is by meekness, not by brute force. Now that's shocking to us and that's equally shocking to the first century audience. Because what Jesus is saying is that it's going to end up going well for those who find themselves on the bottom rung. It's going to go well for those who find themselves as victims, those who find themselves maybe trampled in some sort of way. This is a, a radical invitation that Jesus gives. Now, we, we've talked about meekness in the culture's eyes, and, and I just want to let you know that like, that's not the definition of meekness. That, that's what we tend to think about meekness, but Jesus comes and he offers this, this new, not even new, but, but like sort of reorients us in the truth of what it means to be meek. See, the meekness that Jesus speaks of isn't weakness. It's not, not cowardice. It's not being a pacifist though it can be misunderstood as such, right? It can be misinterpreted as something like that, but true meekness is actually antithetical to all of those other things that culture tends to say. This is what meekness is. Because true meekness is actually subdued strength. True meekness is harnessed power. Now, the, the word meek. Um, the Greek word, this praus, is the Greek word for praise. And what the word praise means is it means a tamed wild animal. That's what weak means. Praus, a tamed wild animal. So just think of this. The, the raw power of a trained elephant. Is the elephant any less powerful now that it listens to some sort of master? No, it's still got all of its power there. It's just harnessed. Or, or think of a, a bridled Mustang. Right? Does it lose any of its power in being tamed? 
No, all the power is still there. It's just not expressed as this dominant force. See, this is what Jesus means when he talks about meekness, this restrained power. And and one of the ways that we see this power work itself out is the fact that there is strength that enables the meek to keep on going even when it seems like they're being trampled. The meek don't resign. The meek don't give up. They're not a sissy. They're not pushovers. They're not weak-minded. There is a fortitude with those who are meek that enables them to endure whatever they face without resentment. What a shift that is from the first century audience. Especially speaking to the Jews, right? They they were resentful of the Greco-Romans, but here Jesus says, look, true meekness means that you keep pressing on without resenting because in the end, it's gonna shake out for you. See, this power this subdued power manifests itself in gentleness and humility. See, meekness doesn't mean that we just leave it as is, we, we put our hands up and walk away. It doesn't mean that we don't step in and right the wrongs. It doesn't mean forcing our way, right? It doesn't mean we sit on our hands and do nothing. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the meek man is one who may so believe in standing for truth that he will die for it if necessary. So we see that meekness also involves some sort of conviction. But it's not a conviction that acts in self-assertion. It doesn't have an agenda of self. Meekness is doing God's will in God's own way. But here's the deal. Like, Like Jesus invites us into this life of meekness but it's so hard to discern, right? What is the meek thing to do? What, 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 is, what does it look like for me to be weak at work or at home or in missional community? What does meekness look like? It's hard to discern and even harder to execute because the problem with us is that we have skewed motives. We're trying to figure out what the right thing to do is and so we can say, okay, God obviously wants this for me. His, his scripture tells me this, but then how do I go about getting that? That's where things get twisted. If, if you were the first century Jews, you would think, well, certainly God wants us to flourish. Certainly God wants what's best for us. And so we think, they would think that, that our way, or the way to get this is to push back against Rome. But their idea of how to go about doing this was wrong. Like God's will, yes, not necessarily God's way. And we tend to do the same thing with difficult people. We do this at work, right? What, what, what's God want me to do? I, I see God's promises. He wants me to live into this way. But then we, we revert back to self-assertion to get this by my own means. And so we take things into our own hands. We act in vengeance, but we forget that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I just think of the Exodus story, man. The, the Israelites had a lot to be mad at when they were delivered from Egypt, Right? The, Egypt had, the Egyptians had oppressed them for 400 years and, and, and God tells them, be still and I will fight for you. Now that's, that's not passivity, okay? Like to say, I'm gonna put this in God's hands, that's not what it means to be passive. That means you understand how the world works. That, that means you see beyond this moment into what God has extending beyond this one moment in time. 
And when we forget this, we slip back in trying to conquer and earn the world by our own means. It's, it's easy for us to slip right back into this. But here's the thing, if we've come this far in the Sermon on the Mount so far and we've already realized, first of all, that we're poor in spirit, that, that we ought to be mourning over our sin, what would make us think that asserting my will and doing it my way will actually work to bring about flourishing? It doesn't work. And, and it's so foolish that we try it time and time again, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't pan out for our good, nor does it work in the favor of other people. But this is precisely why Jesus had to come. See, the only one who could embody this meekness is Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells us what is the core of his very heart. He says, I am meek, I am gentle and lowly at heart. See, Jesus, there, there's nobody more powerful than Jesus. Right, right now, he's ruling, he's reigning, upholding all of the cosmos. Yet, he harnessed his power. He put on meekness and gentleness and humility so that when we come to him, when we approach him, we don't have to be worried about getting trampled on. He's approachable. Jesus was a bridled beast, right? In this sense where he had this raw power, but he chose to lay down his self-assertion and he always did God's will, God's way. He says, I, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. Now, we look at this Jesus and his meekness, and it's like, okay, cool, Jesus was meek. There's something attractive about that. There's something inviting about that. But then you, you start to work the story out, and you see that really Jesus' meekness isn't all that encouraging <laughs> in some ways, right? Look what it got him. Look, look how his life ended. Jesus was meek, yet he was rejected. Jesus was meek, Yet he got trampled on, run over, beaten down, right? We see this meekness and we see where it landed Jesus and, and so there's no wonder why we misinterpret this meekness. And so we think, well, of course, like Jesus as he's sitting there on the cross and he just a scoffer saying, you know, if you really were the son of God, you could call down the angels and they would tend to you. And we kind of think, yeah, that's right. Why wouldn't he do that? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't he just call down the angels and avoid the cross, why wouldn't Jesus meet power with power and really flex on the Roman world, flex on the, the Jewish religious leaders? Why wouldn't he do that? It's because Jesus in this moment is showing us true meekness. The cross isn't passive. The cross is the power of God. The cross is the power of Jesus. It's where he harnessed the power and he took on all of our sins. Daniel Doriani, on commenting on the cross here, he says, the work of meekness is not the absence of assertiveness. See, Jesus isn't on the cross and he's just being passive here. 
What we see on the cross, Doriani says, meekness is the absence of self-assertion. The forceful person is meek when they use their assertion for others, and that's exactly what we see here on the cross, that Jesus is using his assertion for other people. He's using this, he's enduring the cross for us. See, on the cross, Jesus faced the wrath of God that was intended for us because we failed to live this meek life. We have demanded our way on our terms. And Jesus took this beat down so that that wouldn't be the end of our story. You see, it it looks like the story ends with Jesus taking this beat down and that's it, but it's not it. Because three days later, Jesus got on up from the grave. The power of God rose Jesus from the grave. And Paul tells us that if we put our faith in Jesus, we will be like him and we will be raised. His resurrection is our resurrection. His defeat of sin and death will be our victory over sin and death. And by this example of meekness, Jesus opens us up to this way of the good life. He shows us the way to flourishing is through meekness. Now what we're seeing here in the Beatitudes, in the first three here, is that the gospel says our sorry state, so being poor in spirit, being mourning, if you feel like you're being trampled on, if you're, you're those who are marginalized or feeling meek and trampled on, our sorry state is met by the grace of God if you're willing to accept it. And we see here that the meek inherit the earth. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we earn the earth. It doesn't mean that we conquer the earth. It means that we receive the earth. So this is good news. If you feel like you're walking around, you're trampled, you're walking around like your, your tail's tucked between your legs and you're just getting, you're getting beat up by the world, there's good news for you, friends. Jesus wants to lift you up. Scripture says, let the lowly exalt in their high places with Christ and let, here's the opposite side of this, let those who are proud and rich boast in their lowness. See, this is again, the upside down kingdom at work. So if, if you are a steamroller, if you have those tendencies to go about life on your terms, doing things your way, then the invitation is for you to be humbled, to, in, in, to harness this power that you have, not to become a pansy, but to use it in a way that frees you from self-assertion. See, this is the invitation into meekness, to trust and to follow Jesus, to take on his yoke. He says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And when you do this, there's rest. See, in this world, you have to constantly be going, constantly demanding, constantly be chasing after, getting after what you want. And here Jesus says, listen, you can rest. You don't have to get after it. Not, not in the way that the culture wants to tell you to get after it. You can rest in what is mine and there's a way that there's contentedness in meekness. Because the striving to get, the striving to gain, the striving to acquire is ceased because in Christ we have everything. Paul says in having nothing, we have it all. In having Christ, we have everything. This is the disposition of those who are meek. Now, what does this look like? As Jesus invites us into meekness, what does it look like to trust and to follow Jesus, to take on his yoke? What does it learn, what does it look like to learn this way of rest? 
Like, what does it look like to step into meekness? And here's the reality. If you despise meekness, you're going to despise Jesus. If you despise meekness, you're going to want to have nothing to do with Jesus. And you're going to miss out on this good life. So what does it look like for us to step into this? What does it mean for you and me to become meek? Well, let's think of that in a couple ways. Let's look at prayer. Are you going to God to get what you want? Are you using prayer as a mechanism to achieve your agenda? Oh God, would you please just let me get boo? Would you please just let me get this? Can I have this? Or when you pray, do you have a contented posture? Right? Not, not necessarily ready to, to grab, but to have open hands to receive whatever God has for you. Or, or how, how, think of it in terms of relationships. What does it look like to be meek? How, have you ever asked yourself the question, how do other people experience me? When I step in the room, what, what am I like? How do people see me? Am I a steamroller, or do I have this sense of humility and meekness? And you can, you can ask your MC this, right? What's it like? Am I, do I dominate our conversations? Do I tend to make it about me? Do I try to use our community as a means to my own end? Do I get defensive when I'm corrected? Because those who are meek are humble and willing to be teachable. Or have you experienced the gentleness of Jesus in such a way that compels you to use your power on behalf of others? Not in self-assertion, but to see what is God's will and how does he want to bring this about? The church is at its best when we follow Jesus. In fact, when we're not following Jesus, the church stops being the church. And if we're gonna follow Jesus, we have to learn this way of meekness. And here's what I wanna tell you. The way of meekness is welcoming. The way of meekness is inviting. The way of meekness is open. The way of meekness is kind. And this is exactly what we find in Jesus. When we come to him, he doesn't push us away. Like, if you think about it, what could slow Jesus down more than a group of sinners? But that's not, Jesus doesn't push us away. He invites us in. He allows us to experience his meekness. And when we come to the Lord's Supper today, that's exactly the invitation, to come, to taste and see his goodness, to find his meekness. And the promise is that those who are meek will inherit the earth. The story doesn't end with us being trampled on. As Christians, it might feel like we're getting trampled on in this season. I don't know if there's ever been a season where that hasn't necessarily been the case. But Jesus tells us the story ends differently than what it looks like it's trending towards. The meek will inherit the earth. And not this crummy version of the earth that we have going on right now. We're going to inherit the renewed earth, the earth as it was meant to be. Jesus is inviting us into laying hold of life as it ought to be, to have this good life. 
Will you take it? Will you bring it in? Will you trust and follow Jesus? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your ways are not our ways, that they are so much higher, more beautiful, more fulfilling, God. Would you help us to develop a a taste, a hunger for doing life your way, doing your will your way? Would you help us to become meek people, not people who bite into this lie that we have to assert ourselves, we have to dominate, but people who see that Jesus was dominated so that we would inherit that Jesus was trampled, that Jesus was beaten down on the cross so that all of life would be opened up to us. We ask that you would show us this Jesus and make us like him. And in Jesus' name we pray this, amen. 